Thank you, Brennan. I'm very proud that Brennan is from St. Ambrose Parish. I can testify he goes to Mass on Sundays. Very happy to see all of you here tonight, especially since there's so much going on. I know during the summer things get busy, but you know what? You always have to have time to go to an Irish pub. That's an important part of life. Your faith and your spirituality. So, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, when we think about saints and martyrs, we think of people far away. We think of Jerusalem, we think of Rome, we think of the Colosseum. But how many people think of saints and martyrs in Virginia? And that's our topic tonight. Tonight I want to tell you a fantastic story of a lost Spanish colony. It has every piece of a good Hollywood movie. There's kings and queens, there's soldiers and sailors, there's friendship and betrayal, there are priests, there are Indians, there's battles, there's blood, all the good things that make a Hollywood movie great. But it's not a fictional story. Everything I will talk about tonight is not a Hollywood story, it's all real. And it did happen. In fact, it happened in 1571 when Father Juan Bautista Segura and a group of Jesuits from Spain came and began to announce the gospel for the first time here in Virginia. Now, the story I'm telling tonight is an important story for our nation because it was the first true European colony in Virginia. It was the settlement here with these Jesuits 37 years before Jamestown. So think about this, that when the tribes of the area first heard Europeans, they spoke Spanish, not English. And they would have watched as they spoke Latin when they celebrated Mass or said the Rosary. So this is our Catholic family tree, and you and I are part of that. Tonight's story is also very important for all of us because it took place only about 100 miles from here, literally just about an hour and a half away. And think that our state began its European connection with the baptism in blood of those who came to announce the Gospel in the Catholic faith. In 2002, the Diocese of Richmond named Father Russell Smith, a priest who grew up in Williamsburg, as the official postulator of the cause of these Jesuits, because they died within the boundaries of the Diocese of Richmond. And since then, the Virginia Historical Society and also the Jesuits' headquarters in Rome have been very active and involved. But what is most amazing about the story I'm going to tell you tonight is nobody knows it. In fact, already tonight, as I walked in here and started talking to people, almost everyone I met said, Father, I came tonight not only because the Alton Tap was fun, but because I've never heard anything about Jesuit martyrs or martyrs in the state of Virginia. So how many people here have heard this story before? Wow, all right. Very good. I'm glad I came tonight. All right. Well, to tell you the truth, even most Virginians don't know this, even Virginia historians. Because it wasn't until about maybe 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago that after the Diocese of Richmond presented information in historical research, that the state of Virginia put a historical mile marker on a public highway nearby Jamestown, saying that somewhere in this region that the first attempted settlement took place in 1571 by Jesuit missionaries. So even the state of Virginia did not publicly proclaim this until a short time ago. So if you were driving on the back roads of Jamestown, Virginia, and you just see the sign, remember Father Fisher's talk at Theology on Tap. But most importantly tonight, I hope that it's a chance to learn something about the Catholic faith, to learn and be inspired by saints and martyrs, and also to have friends in heaven that can intercede and pray for us. And after done tonight, Brendan here at the front table has a few little flyers with kind of a summary of their story and their names and how to pray to them, some of their prayers. 
All right, let's get to the story. We're wide awake, let's get to the story. Back in the colonial period, Spain had two great desires. First, to evangelize, to bring the gospel to the parts of the world being discovered who had never heard of Jesus Christ. And secondly, they wanted to find a quicker sea route to do trade with India and with the Orient. And these two goals for Spain were interwoven because as the Spain sent out explorers, they took missionaries with them. So not only could they hopefully find this valuable trade, but they could also at the same time bring the gospel to others. Beginning in the summer of 1526, Spanish ships left the safe harbors of the Dominican Republic to explore the uncharted waters of the Atlantic coast. One explorer, Lucas Vaquez, made his way all the way to the Chesapeake Bay. In fact, it was so beautiful as he sailed to the Chesapeake Bay, he named it the Bay of the Mother of God. Did you know that? The original title of Chesapeake Bay was the Baja de Madre de Dios, the Bay of the Mother of God. <laughs> and not having time to explore all of the bay, he stayed to the southern perimeter, the peninsula, which would be today Hampton, Newport News, Worktown area, and he called it Ahakan. So the official first title of Virginia was Ahakan. Soon the Spanish established forts going up the waterways, beginning in the south in La Florida, which means the place of flowers, and eventually to modern-day Georgia and South Carolina. The farthest north fort slash mission they had was in modern-day Paris Island, South Carolina. You've heard of the Marines, you certainly have heard of Paris Island. And it was there that Santa Elena was the last mission in port going up the coast. But now the Spanish wanted to go one step farther, to go back and now bring the gospel to the Baja de Mano de Dios. And so, in the next few expeditions going through the Chesapeake Bay, trying to get better maps and figure it out, in July of 1561, the Spanish boat, the Santa Catalina, under the care of Antonio Velasquez, saw something on shore. He saw the tribes. And they were staring at the boats, and the Spaniards were staring at them. And finally, they pulled over and began a conversation with the native Indians there. And they convinced the chief to let two of the teenage boys come with them on their boat back to their home country. Now remember, your mother always told you, don't get in the boats with strange sailors, right? <laughs> but the chief thought this was a great idea, so he let, his, he let the two boys go. They're about 17 years old, and so they're from the Chickenominy tribe. It's a famous river in the Newport Hampton area named after them. But also, as they got on boats and began to somehow dialogue with these two indigenous tribemen, they figured out one of them was a prince, a chief of the local tribe and then his servant. And so the young boy's name was Paul Kikineo and his servant. Paul Kikineo was the son of one of the local tribe chiefs. And they went with them all the way back to Spain. First they landed in Portugal and they made their way to Spain. And while in Spain for a year, Paul Kikineo and his servant learned to dress like the Spaniards, to speak Spanish. They became educated in the Spanish ways and Spanish culture. And because of their celebrity status, they're invited to meet the king. And they're actually guests of King Philip II in the royal court for almost a month. Let me pause for a moment. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine the Tikanani tribe that only knew canoes would see huge sailing ships? This tribe never left more than its region. They were regional people. And yet for over a week, they would have been in the water with no sight of land. And then arriving in this new world, they saw huge buildings made of brick and stone. We were then to Seville, where the king was living at the time. The cathedral is stories tall, with large bells that ring every hour. They would have seen horses for the first time, since horses were not indigenous to the Americas. They would have seen people dressed up in wigs and fancy clothes. And you can imagine people that sometimes as forest and farmers would have had famine or problems to go to the world court and see food and wine spread out in every direction. It must have been an amazing sight for Bokkineo and his servants who came and experienced this. But as they began to learn Spanish and they began to take catechism classes, they were intrigued as the Spanish came up with the idea that we'd like to go back to where your people are from and spread the gospel. Would you be interested? And they said yes. 
So one year later, in 1562, they sailed back across the ocean with the Dominicans. And they arrived in Mexico. And it was there they began to study and work with the Dominicans in Mexico City with the thought that they could go as translators and also navigators. There was one problem. Joaquineo and the servant became very sick. They caught some type of disease. And they got very close to death. And they begged for baptism. So the Viceroy of Mexico, Luis de Velasco, asked permission for them to be baptized. And they were baptized. And so Joaquineo was so grateful for the hospitality and the support of the Viceroy of New Mexico, of Mexico, New Spain, he took the Viceroy's name, Luis, as his baptismal name. And because he was of royal blood, the Spanish being very formal, always, for someone of royal blood, we call them Don. Kind of in English, it's a Sir. So from now on, Joaquineo was referred to by all the Spaniards as Don Luis. So Don Luis being a Christian. His servant became a Christian, but unfortunately must not have made it because all his historic documents never mention the servant again. But Don Luis came back to health, and with the Dominicans began sailing to La Florida, and eventually up. And twice, Don Luis and the Dominicans and the Spanish on ships made it all the way up the Atlantic coast into the Bay of the Mother of God, just as storms were starting. And twice they tried to put their anchor down and couldn't. The storms were so strong. In fact, the second time, the storms are so strong they thought they were going down. They turned and sailed out to the ocean and went all the way back to Spain. So Don Luis was a little bit sad. He was so excited to get back to his people. And the Dominicans were so excited to spread the gospel. But it never happened. But after two failed attempts, the Dominicans decided to focus their attention somewhere else. And while studying in Seville, going down to college, because Don Luis had been educated and spoken in Spanish, he went to a college run by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits, too, wanted to go and help to evangelize the New World. And so every time he went to class and met the Jesuit professors, he renewed his desire to go as their translator and navigator. So the Jesuits were excited and agreed that they would go and that this young man would be their friend, their navigator, their translator, who was a godsend. It would be like someone who helped St. Paul, always had groups of converts helping him as St. Paul went around preaching the gospel. So Don Luis and the Jesuits sailed from Spain back to Mexico. So this is now the fourth time Don Luis has sailed across the ocean. Can you imagine again for a young boy who grew up just in a little village to suddenly four times not only see the world, but to see far beyond what anyone in this village had ever hoped would ever exist. While he was there, he met Father Juan Baptista Segura. Father Segura was born in Toledo, ordained a Jesuit priest in 1559, was an academic. He had been a professor at several Jesuit colleges and institutes. But after teaching for a while, he had a desire to be a missionary. Father Segura got permission from the head Jesuit in Rome, St. Francis Borgia, to go and to become a missionary. And so he went all the way to the New World, and when he got there, he was named the Vice Provincial of Florida, which meant he was the second in command of all the Jesuit evangelization programs. And he started to put together kind of a team to go and to bring the gospel to Ahakan, to the people of the Bay of Mary, the Mother of God. So Juan Bautista Segura was 40 years old, on fire with the faith, very brilliant, very virtuous. They said that he was so excited. He was just a man of total clarity and honor and integrity. And he was wanting so much to go and to, at whatever cost, bring the faith to the people of this area. Now, there was one problem. He was the number two man, but the number one man said, when you go, because of problems in the past, we're sending a lot of soldiers with you. And Father Segura, a man of great honor and great faith, said, I'm going to ask a favor here. When I go to Ahikon, when I go to Virginia, modern-day Virginia, I want to go simply as a missionary. I waive all requests. I don't want any soldiers, any sailors, no guns. I want to go purely for the love of God to bring the gospel. Now, remember, in Florida, and up and down the coast, there's the Spanish of the forts. There were periodic battles with some of the tribes. And the Spanish knew that it could be difficult. But Father Fagor was a man of faith and said, we're in God's hands, we do not need guns. Now, truth be told, 
I'll pause here. Open's not being recorded. Truth be told, the Spanish had had some problems with some of their missionary work because while the Jesuit priests and Franciscans and Dominicans were preaching the gospel, some of the soldiers were not always virtuous. And so it was a little bit difficult as the priests were talking about holiness and some of the Christian or Catholic soldiers were drinking, gambling, and doing other things. So Father Segura, many historians think, wanted to put everything aside to be focused and have the, the people of the tribe see only the best and the good. So anyway, he finally got permission. And so they went and began to go. In August of 1570, Father Segura and his companions, including Don Luis, made their way all the way to Santa Elena. And as there, they stopped the last outpost. And being like the last stop of the Jersey Turnpike to get to New York. It was the last bit of Spanish culture. Their last sangria, their last good Spanish food before heading out to the wilderness. Who knows what would come ahead. So I'm sure they celebrated, they prayed with the, Jesu the Jesuits who were missionaries there. And they began to pack up. But this is important because two things happened on their last stop only a few days before they reached their goal of Virginia. First, while they're packing, two colonists in this colony have a 14-year-old son who steps forward and says, I want to go with them, Mom and Dad. I want to go with the missionaries. And his name was Alonso de Almos. Alonso was 14 years old and wanted to go. He said, I'm going to go with them. This is going to be great. Now, I want you to know, as a priest, whenever I'm about to go to a place where there might be death and blood and fighting, I always try to bring the youth group with me or all the time. For some reason, Father Segura said, yeah, come on, let's go. And got all the correct permission forms and virtues and everything else from all the to, to go. But because of that, because of his openness to have the young teenage boy come, many historians feel as though it wasn't just adventure. He probably was thinking of being at some point a missionary himself, either a lay catechist or a Jesuit. But anyway, Alonso got the one-way ticket to go, and he signed up to go. The second interesting thing about this quick stop is they load up their food, their clothing, their provisions, their vestments, the chalice, the bread and wine, all the things they need, is that one of the Jesuits there, loaded with supplies, got to an interesting conversation only about a day before the boat sailed with Don Luis. And this is an important conversation because they had to keep track of the conversations they had because the Jesuits would always send back to headquarters stories of their adventures, their missionary work. And so if you ever read some of the great uh, stories of Isaac Jones and Martyrs of North America and others, it's because their testimonies were recorded and it was sent back to headquarters so that if something happened, their stories could be told, but also so that people would be inspired to pray for them and even join the cause and get more missionaries. But Brother Juan de la Cara was loaded supplies and got to meet Don Luis, who was a little bit of a celebrity. And he said, Don Luis, and this is his words, was a liar, a cheat, and a man with no integrity. Wow. So as the Jesuit is getting into a conversation with Don Luis, he's not impressed that Don Luis's heart or mind is really in this mission that he's about to go in, and he's going to be the leader. He's going to be the compass for the Jesuits. And Brother Juan records this, and also records that he went to Father Segura the head and said, Hey, psst, the guy you got here, I wouldn't take. And Father Segura said, No, I've known him, we've prayed together, he's an honest man, he's going to do great, and this is God's plan, we're going to do it. We're going to go and evangelize, and I know that Don Luis is a man of virtue, he'll be great. So they load up, and they go. September 10th, 1570, the boat arrives with the missionaries into the Bay of Mary, the Mother of God. There are ten in the landing party, two Jesuit priests, three Jesuit brothers, three Spanish lay catechists, one Spanish teacher, one Spanish teenager, Alonso, who just joined, and Don Luis. When they go into the Chesapeake Bay, they sail up the York River. They get only a little bit up the river and they stop where there's safe harbor, would be today the Pukasan River. And there they stop, they pull over, and in their memoirs, the first thing they want to do is celebrate Mass. They pull over, they get out, they find a bluff overlooking the, the grounds and the Chesapeake Bay, 
It's surrounded by pines, and they say they get logs and woods together for an altar. And everyone, the people on the ship, all of the missionary party, they get down, and the first thing they do is to consecrate this area and the people are about to serve to God. They celebrate the Eucharist. That spot, not far from the Yorktown battlefield, was where the first mass was celebrated in the state of Virginia. Sadly, there's no marker. Sadly, we're not sure exactly where it was, but historians and archivists who work with the cause of the saints can pinpoint it was right around the modern-day Yorktown battlefield. Then they get back on the boat, and they continue up the York River with Don Luis at the front of the boat, looking, trying to remember exactly where his village was, where he was picked up. Remember, it's been 10 years since Don Luis saw any of this. Well, Don Luis leads them up uh, the York River and begins to notice things looking familiar. And then it says, I believe over here is a settlement. This is all looking familiar. Let's stop over here. And they go up and they stop. Unfortunately, the settlement is a little bit uh, deserted. There's not many people there. There's only a handful of uh, tribal people there from his tribe. They know him, they speak his language, they recognize him. But they explain that there's been a horrible drought and famine for over a year. And that most of the village had been wiped out, and a few people had fled back to Don Luis's original village. Not the village on the water, the York River, but farther inland, about a day or a day and a half through the woods. So Don Luis convinces the Jesuits, all right, I'm going to take you to my village. When we go to my village, since I'm the chief, they're going to welcome you, red carpet treatment, leave the boats and the, and the people on the boats, grab the supplies, and let's go to the woods. I'll take you to my people. So, Father Segura, very trusting, says, let's do it. So they get off the boat, they unload their supplies, they pack up what they can, and they go with the few Indians that they've met in the village and survived the drought, and they begin walking through the woods. In the, the moments while they're packing up, uh, Father Segura and the other priest, Father Kiros, write a letter. And this is important because this is the only written document to come from this missionary effort. The father, Kiros, who had been the head of the Jesuit college in Spain for the conversion of the Moors, writes an update about what's happening. And then Father Segura writes a PS at the bottom. And the Jesuit archives, they have this letter. It's kind of neat. It's the only letter handwritten by anyone involved from that mission trip. Okay, so the recap. They say that as they're unloading their supplies, Don Luis is uncertain of the exact location of his village. That's not good. Number two, the entire area is suffering from famine and drought, and the local tribe did not give them a warm welcome. Again, not a good start to this mission. They said that the people recognized Don Luis, and they were intrigued. In fact, they hinted maybe it looked like he came back from the dead, but nonetheless, they trusted him. The local Indians had an interaction with him. Don Luis said that the word he got was some of his family members were back now, not just at the first village, but even bigger village. And he had a family member, a three-year-old, who was very sick and would maybe be in need of baptism. So perhaps when they get to the next village, Don Luis can go back to the biggest village and he'll take care of everything. Don Luis is having grandiose ideas about helping the Jesuits. And then lastly, Father Segura writes his PS and says that because of the loss of crops, I would like to ask that the Jesuits and the King of Spain send in their supply ship a few months later, as many seed bags as you could, so that not only we plant enough for the Jesuit mission, but we can provide for all these villages that have been wiped out, and that we can teach them how to plant, and we can make sure we provide for all their needs. Well, the Segura's PS is very specific. He wants to provide for the needs of the people who he hasn't even brought the gospel to yet. He's so moved the plight of what's going on. Lastly, Bausagora <clears throat> gives the order for them to leave no provisions for the Jesuits because it will be about a week to get back to South Carolina, their first stop back to the Spanish settlements. But also, Bausagora believes, as Don Luis said, that when we get to the next village, I'm a prince. We're getting the royal treatment. Trust me. Trust me. So the Jesuits are left with little food. And so they're left there, and they go on foot and through a canoe for about a day and a half in the woods until they get to the second village belonging to Don Luis's people. Today is the Diascan Creek. And they get there, and there the Jesuits take some wood they find, and they build a small cabin 
and they built a chapel attached to it. So the Jesuits now, at the Diaskin Creek, build the first structure, the first church or chapel for the Catholics to celebrate Mass. Well, it's now about five days into their missionary work, and something happens. Don Luis announces, it's time for me to go. You're on your own. I'm going back to the head village. I'll see what I can do. It's been great knowing you guys, and I'm taking off. Don Luis gets up and leaves the missionary party, who cannot speak the language, who have no food, and as Don Luis leaves, he must have said something to the local tribe in the area, because after Don Luis leaves, they no longer willing to trade or help the Jesuit missionaries. Don Luis must have said something to him because now the Jesuits literally are starving. And in the story that's told, they have to begin eating roots from trees and berries, whatever they can find, because they are absolutely starving. The local tribe won't talk to them, and Don Luis disappears. It is a very bad and dark moment. Twice Father Segura sends one of the Jesuit brothers through the woods to the main tribe village where Don Luis is now in residence. And when the Jesuit brother comes back, he has very bad news for Father Segura. Don Luis has gone back to his old ways, renounced his faith, and renounced all European things. Don Luis is now living in native culture. Don Luis now goes back to his original name, Bokikineo. Don Luis now has nothing to do with the Jesuits. And Don Luis, because he's a royal tribe, is given a special privilege among the tribe, and that is polygamy. And within about a few weeks, Don Luis now has a few wives. Oh my goodness. Now what the starving Jesuits want to hear about their star pupil who was supposed to help them in their missionary work. So Don Luis has renounced all things. And they know it's bad. Because if he has renounced all things, you can only fear the worst, because the local tribes then might react strongly against these missionaries. So at this point, the Jesuit catechists, the three lay catechists, all gather with the Jesuits and make vows as Jesuit brothers. And this is important for the Jesuits and for American church history, because if so, this would be the first religious profession in the current United States of America. So the Jesuits in Rome are very interested in this because these three laymen who arrived as laymen will, by the end of my story tonight, be Jesuit brothers and have made a profession to enter into his life. With no contact with Don Luis throughout the harsh winter, things are really now at the end. And in February of 1571, Father Segura prays and sends a one last effort to try and bring the conversion of Don Luis and some type of assistance, knowing that they're not sure how much longer it will take for the Spanish ships to come with more supplies. So in February 1571, Father Quiros and two of the Jesuit brothers, Father Gabriel and Father Juan, make their way to the main village. They get to Don Luis and they beg him, Don Luis, please, come back to your faith in Jesus Christ, renounce the ways that you've come back to, and come back and be with us, be a missionary as you promised us you would be. Don Luis says, get out. So Father Quiros and the two brothers start the long walk home. It would actually be an overnight trip. It would be about two days, they estimate, maybe two and a half days, to go from the main village back to the Diaspin Creek, where the lower village was, where the Jesuit uh, camp chapel were. Halfway back, Don Luis and the, war and the warriors of the village come, and they attack them. With arrows, they kill Father Quiros, and they also kill Brother Gabriel. Father Brother Juan is attacked by arrows and runs into the woods and hides. He makes it to the night with his wounds bleeding, but the next morning he's so weak they find him and they kill him with a tomahawk. They estimate this would be February 4th and 5th, 1571. Four days later, Don Luis and the warriors appear back at the Jesuit camp. And so as they enter the camp, Father Segura is nervous. Where are the other Jesuits? They never came back. But now Don Luis and these warriors are here. But Father Segura is a man of true faith, innocent faith, and total trust. He gets up, he had been sick, and he goes over and embraces Don Luis. In fact, as the story is told, he embraced him as if it was the prodigal son come home. 
Don Luis says to the Jesuits, I have come with my friends to help. Please, let us chop down firewood since it's cold. Let us help rebuild the chapel because the winter's been tough on the chapel. Show us your storage shed. Where do you keep your axes? Jesuits are trusting. They point out the shed. Don Luis and the warriors go into the shed, get the axes, and instantly take the axes upon the Jesuits. They begin to cut down the Jesuits one by one in the village. All of them, including Don Luis, uh, including Father Segura, the head one who trusted them. Uh, Alonso, the 14-year-old Spaniard, is at the edge of the village. Alonso hears the screaming, comes running in, and one of the Indian warriors grabs him and holds him back. As the story is told, the Indian that held him back was the brother of Don Luis. And although he's screaming, let me go and help the, help the priest, they're my people, they wouldn't let him go. And as Alonso begins to scream more and more, he changes and says, please, let me go and die with them. Let me go and die with them. I came, I wanted to make sure and spread the faith here. But they didn't let him go, they held on to him. In fact, they, they pinned him down, they wouldn't let him go until everyone was killed. It may seem strange why they let Alonso go. Uh, in Indian culture at the time, you did not kill children. And although 14 may seem like a quasi-adult, he was not dressed in a Jesuit cassock or habit. So they probably thought, well, he's not a priest, and he's not old enough to do that yet. So because he was a teenager in lay clothes, they let him go. Uh, the Indians also had a habit or tradition that if you did take children from an enemy tribe, you adopted them in and you made them part of your tribe. So what happened was, that Alonso was taken in, and then a few days later, maybe two weeks later, he went to a different tribe and was sold. He was bartered for corn in a neighboring tribe. And so Alonso lived there in a different village with a different tribe. Fast forward now, several months later, August. Remember, they died in February. It's now August of 1571. A Spanish supply ship makes its way all the way back to the Diascan Creek. And they're looking for the Jesuits. And as the ship pulls in, they look on the shore, and it looks like the Jesuits at first. Until the boat gets closer, and they realize that on the shore, waving them, signaling them to come ashore, are Indians dressed in the Jesuits' cassocks and in their vestments. And the Spanish sailors realize something horrible must have happened. And so, realizing something is going on, the tribe jumps in canoes and begins to attack the Spanish ship. So they begin to fire back and several casualties take place. During the exchange, during the battle going on here, two of the tribesmen are taken prisoner. And they're both chiefs, they're related to the chief. And as they quickly try to escape because the Spanish ship doesn't know the full story of what's going on, one of the chiefs escapes, but the second one they have caught is taken all the way back to Havana. And is there that they're interrogated. And they learn the story of how the Jesuit priests and uh, brothers had all been martyred, and they learned that Alonso had lived. So the Spanish are outraged, and they vow some type of rescue mission to go back. Soon after, the Jesuit superior in Florida, Father Juan Ronald, writes a letter to St. Francis Borgia, the head of the Jesuits, detailing the first account of what had happened, and also back to Santa Elena, Brother Juan and others who had met them and helped them began to write testimony. So this is how we get a lot of the story is that the first telling of the story right after the event took place is told and passed back to the Jesuit headquarters. Okay, fast forward now several months to September 1572. A number of Spanish naval ships now work their way back up to the Chesapeake Bay and back up looking for revenge. Father Segura went in peace. These ships did not come in peace. They came for revenge. They found their way all the way back to where they had been attacked earlier. And they found their way, thanks to the interrogation of the chiefs that they had had in Havana, to the tribe where Alonso was. And it was there they were able to trade and get Alonso. So Alonso got back safe and sound to the Spanish. They looked for Don Luis, but Don Luis had gone into hiding. They wanted nothing to do with the Spanish, you can imagine why. And unable to find him, they took prisoners, and they began to interrogate the prisoners. The Spanish say that when the prisoners, the people of the village were brought on board the Spanish ship, they were shocked because when the ships came back, they came back with more Jesuit priests. And the Jesuits have a very distinctive habit. It's kind of a wrapped fold with buttons on the left shoulder, kind of a special sash. 
And of course, in those days, the Jesuits all had tonsure, so they had a little fire truck haircut, and they all looked alike. So they said when the villagers were being brought on board the ship to be interrogated to find out what really happened, that a lot of the Indians were shocked because it looked like the Jesuits had come back from the dead. And it took them a while to realize that they really needed to tell the story. They just stood there in shock. But eventually they told the story. The Spanish feel they found the people guilty of it, and they put to death about 20 villagers for their part in killing the innocent Jesuit missionaries. And then they left. Now, let me try and wrap things up here and bring things to a conclusion. What's the aftermath? Well, the first question everyone asks is, what happened to Alonso, the teenager? So Alonso, the almost alone survivor, returned safe and sound to his parents back in Santa Elena in South Carolina. He sat down and gave a full eyewitness account of all that happened, the conversation, and the events. And that report is the basis of the church's cause of canonization for these Jesuit priests and brothers. Alonso, when he did return, about five years later became a Spanish soldier and helped to guard the fort, the mission there at Santa Elena. Sadly, at the age of 20 in 1576, almost five years after return, that fort was attacked by an Indian raiding party in South Carolina, and he was killed in a skirmish. So Alonso lived for five years after his freedom from Virginia, from Ahakan, but in that time, he at least was able to give us the opposite account of what happened. And for Spain, they never went back. They gave up on Virginia. They focused their attention on the Caribbean and Mexico. How about the English? Well, the English had eyes on Virginia and wanted to start a colony there. But the English never spoke about Ahikan or the Spanish missionaries. Part of that is because at this time, Catholicism was outlawed in England. Henry VIII forbid the Catholic faith. And so it wouldn't be a very good story that if you're going to go and spread the faith someplace or go and start a colony, that you're going to say, well, we're not the first there. The Spanish Catholics were ahead of us. So if you ever look at any information written in the colonial period about the founding of Virginia or missionaries going there, all it talks about is Jamestown. So before you get to Jamestown, 14 years after the Jesuits, in 1584, the English make their first attempt. And they go to Roanoke Island, which is the outer banks of North Carolina, the very southern part of Virginia. And it's there they start a colony. But because the English can't come back and resupply it, what happens? No one knows. It's called the Lost Colony. They're going to the outer banks, you can go to the little place they put on. But the colony is lost. So they try again. 37 years after the Jesuits, in 1607, the English arrive at Jamestown. Here they found the settlement only a short distance from where the Jesuits had tried to begin their settlement. Now, the English at Jamestown faced the same problems, famine, drought, long delays in supply ships, and several times the Jamestown settlement was touch and go. In 1622, because of a shortage of food, there were major Indian attacks at Jamestown. The worst was about 300 colonists died there. So there was a lot of problems with how the Europeans got along with the indigenous people there. In the early 1630s, 30 local tribes, they were called nations, formed a Powhatan Confederacy under Chief Powhatan. You've probably never heard of Powhatan, but perhaps you've heard of his daughter. Pocahontas, good, all right, Disney fans, very good, all right. Disney stretched the story a little bit, sorry. Just a little bit. But Chief Powhatan, you know his daughter. Pocahontas, who saved John Smith. What you don't know is Powhatan's brother, or sometimes in the historical accounts it's his half-brother, Opek Kong Kanu. was also a tribal leader for the Powhatan people, and of the Chickahominy people. And it was he who was the most vocal opponent to Jamestown. And many people testify that he was the one who always pushed to attack the settlements and get rid of the Europeans to end Jamestown to push them out. So there's an interesting question that historians ask. And this is kind of how I'll bring it in because in history, I always like to say there's the history we know and the history we ponder. Does that make sense? The teacher that. So why was Opet Khan Kanu, the brother of Powhatan and the uncle of Pocahontas, so angry and so opposed to the European settlement of Jamestown? And what do a lot of historians propose? Opet Kong Canoe was really Don Luis. 
Don Luis, who escaped from the Spanish a few years earlier, went looking for him to talk to him about what he did to the Spanish colonists and the Spanish missionaries. So really quick, why does Dorian say this? Well, his tribe was the same tribe that lived where the Jesuit settlement was and where Jamestown was. As a young boy, Don Luis was what? Of royal blood. He was very clear, remember that's why he's called Don Luis, was a member of the chief's royal tribe. Remember he had polygamy. Something belonged only to the chief and the royal tribe. Uh, whenever the name of the Spanish was brought up among the Indians, John Smith and others testified, the Indians kind of rolled their eyes and got very angry. It's interesting. The local indigenous people, under the care of their political leadership, were so avid against the Spanish. If Opec Con Canoe was really Don Luis, you could do it age-wise because Don Luis was young enough in 1570 to still be alive at the time of the Jesuit attacks in 1622. He'd be in his 50s or 60s. Some of the local Indians, the English colonists at Jamestown said, when the topic of Opec Con Canoe came up, said that he was from their tribe, but he came from part of the tribe farther away. Far, far away. Which is interesting because the generation that was younger than him, that knew him, would have only known him as coming back with the Spanish, not of him growing up in the neighborhood. Because remember, he disappeared for almost 10 years. He would have been thought by the younger generation of the tribe to have come from a faraway place. Uh, lastly, John Smith, in one of his, his writings, recalled a meeting with all the chieftains of the Powhatan Confederacy. And John Smith noticed something. That when he met with the chieftains, the leaders of the Powhatan people, including uh, Chief Powhatan, and, you know, Opet Kong Canoe, that all of the Indian chiefs were fascinated by the European gizmos. A compass, a musket, a pistol. They're all fascinated by these things they've never seen before. But he said that one of the chieftains, one of the chiefs, not the head chief, but one of the chieftains, did not pay attention to those things. It was as if he had seen these things before. And this chieftain, through a translator, had questions not about trinkets, but about the other tribes and nations in the land where the English colonists came from. What local people would know or even care to ask about your tribes that you live and work with where you come from? And secondly, that chieftain asked questions about what god do you worship where you come from in your village, your homeland, far away across the ocean? Who would even think to ask those questions? So historians always ponder, so thank you for pondering with me tonight. Wikipedia says it too, if you want to ponder with Wikipedia, you can. But Opec Con Canoe, could have been Don Luis? Could Don Luis have been the uncle of Pocahontas? Saying so, right? The Disney movie will never be the same again. Alright, now really bring them to the landing here. So, the conclusions, why am I here tonight? Was it a success or a failure? I'm glad you asked. Well, in the eyes of many, it really didn't do that much, did it? In five months, what happened? They all died horrible deaths, except for one teenager, and they got betrayed, and in the eyes of the world didn't look like much of a success. But let's stop and put on the eyes of faith for a moment. What's the word martyr mean? It means witness. It's someone who stands up and gives testimony about Jesus Christ, and it's so powerful, you never forget it. That's why I'm here tonight talking to you about something unforgettable in 1571. Pope Francis said that martyrdom is the supreme testimony of the faith. And the martyrs speak more powerfully by action than by word. Cardinal World of Washington, D.C. said that martyrdom is the most vivid summary of the gospel. It is the perfect catechism. The death of the martyr is a proclamation. Even the victim never speaks. Cardinal World goes on to say that no words are necessary. For no testimony in Jesus Christ could be more compelling than someone willing to lay down their life. These heroic missionaries freely chose to leave family and friends, the comfort of their home and their culture back in Spain. They came not looking for fame, fortune, money, or success. They wanted one thing, to bring the good news of Jesus to an area of the world that never heard Jesus before. They came to be apostles and unnecessary martyrs. In their five short months in Virginia, they built the first Catholic chapel, offered the first Catholic masses, saw the first profession of religious life, 
and saw the first programs of charity and evangelization done by the Catholic Church in our state. They brought the Word of God and the sacraments to our beautiful state. The sole purpose of their trip was one, the salvation of souls. And we can see that the seeds they planted and watered by their faith and their blood have borne fruit as the Diocese of Richmond and Arlington continue to grow and bring many, many blessings. Let me end with one last thing. Only a few miles, only a few minutes from where the martyrs died heroically is the Church of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in New Kent, Virginia. It's there only a few miles from the place of their martyrdom that Mass is celebrated every morning. Mass is celebrated only a few minutes away from where the Jesuit martyrs were put to death. The seeds they planted continue to grow and bear fruit even today. What the missionaries longed for and what they died for has come true. The Mass is celebrated, the sacraments are celebrated all throughout Ahakam, the area of Virginia. So tonight, I thank you for coming. I hope you've learned something new. I hope you can call upon these holy and heroic martyrs and saints in heaven. And up here in the front row, Brendan has some handouts that tell the story and give their names, and it gives a prayer for the Jesuit martyrs. And if those prayers are answered, please let me know so that we can add that to our ability to have them soon be declared saints of the church. All right? Let's end with a prayer, and I can take some questions. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord, for the greater glory of God and the salvation of souls, you inspired the Spanish Jesuits, Father Juan Baptista Segura and his companions, to bring the word of God to the people of Virginia and to lay down their lives in martyrdom. Through their intercession, bring the unity of the gospel to all people and grant the favors we ask and permit their beatification as the martyrs of Virginia. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Okay. Questions? Yes? So, yeah, that was certainly a, a very wonderful story presented very well. Well, I actually wanted to know, because I've been thinking about this long when I first uh, heard it, this is going to be discussed uh, about this question. Would you know about uh, uh, who has been the last uh, known mar uh, martyr to uh, who have died on U.S. soil, or at least uh, what's now present-day U.S. soil? Well, good question. Do we know who the last martyrs were? Not all martyrs are known, yeah. right? Sometimes they die. There's blood martyrdom, red martyrdom, there's white martyrdom. I do know that there are several causes of canonization underway for Dominicans in Florida, and also for uh, missionaries in Kansas, going back to the time of the Jesuits. But even with uh, the Jesuits of North America, St. Isaac Jones and Companions, there are many Jesuits who disappeared, and they don't know what happened. As of present day, I do not know uh, by name who might be the most recent. I do know that Pope John Paul II said that the 20th century had the most martyrs ever in the history of the church because of the martyrs of the different world wars and martyrs were missionaries to other parts of the world. So, there are a lot of martyrs. The faith goes on, but the blood of the martyrs is always the seed of the church. Yes? Did uh, not Jesus Right, so when they made their first trip to Spain, and eventually they went to Mexico to begin trying to plant it, that's the last we hear of Don Luis's servant. So he was baptized, and presumably God kept him. Yes. based on documentation. 
how much do we know? And that's why I said throughout the talk that this person gave a written testimony or this person, this eyewitness, so that the documents we have, we can all go back and say are authentic. My first class in my graduate program of history was documentation. It's not enough to have folklore or urban legend. We got plenty of that. But the question is, how do we get authentic? The story of the martyrs mainly comes from uh, Alonso, who was at that point living there for several months and had been adopted by a village and no doubt picked up some words. So perhaps Alonso, since he was rescued in that mission, was able to do some type of translation. Also, the, because the Indians of that area, and forgive me, I use Indian, I, I guess we should be saying Native Americans, or there's different tribal names, but there were 30 nations all under the Powhatan Confederacy was called. They all spoke more or less the same language, Algonquin. And so if some of the other tribes were able to help, they could at least do through another party the translation. Was it a court case like we have today where they had time to repair a case and went through things? Probably not. It was probably done on the spur of the moment. They're able to at least get some ideas of, did you see what happened? Did you do this when you involved? And justice was perhaps given very quickly. Okay. One last question. Very easy question. Did you read all this originally before Carol or Aaron Carroll the crisis there? Sure. I will tell you that I'm a history buff. Fort Brennan, when it comes to Mass at St. Ambrose, always gets a lesson in church history. There's some other St. Ambrose people there, too. Yay. My friends are always at the bar. They tell us about St. Ambrose. Uh, a lot of it is I like doing re original research. So a lot of the documents, you can look at the books and actually track down from the Jesuit catalogs the translation of English on it. So a lot of that is there. There are very few books that go into any details about these Jesuit martyrs. And that's why I said earlier, the Commonwealth of Virginia was very slow to acknowledge it or put a sign up until only a few years ago. And the English, who basically came to Jamestown and proudly proclaimed, we were the first settlement here. The answer is they weren't 37 years earlier, Spanish Catholics were. So sometimes when it's brought up, you'll see in history books, it's ignored, completely ignored. So I end by saying that, back to one of the thoughts at the beginning, when the local people first encountered Europeans, they would have heard Spanish and Latin. Imagine them listening to the Mass, listening to the Jesuits pray the Rosary or pray the Divine Office, all in Latin. So that is the history, and it's told by the Spanish Jesuits, and it's told indirectly through the English as John Smith would bring little clues about some of the Indian leaders who were not impressed with the English because they had seen the Europeans before. Okay? Amen. Brendan, please, end us with announcements or anything you have.